This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. We were looking last week at Daniel chapter 7, Daniel's first vision of four wild beasts that rise up out of the stormy sea. And one like the Son of Man that comes with the clouds of heaven. Daniel 1 through 6 is the more historical section. Daniel 7 through 12 is almost entirely predictive prophecy. In chapters 7 through 12, you have four great visions. We're looking at the first one in chapter 7, Daniel's first vision. Four wild beasts that represent four great empires that will dominate world history and by and large oppress God's people Israel during a period that Jesus called the times of the Gentiles. From 605 BC at the beginning of the Babylonian captivity all the way to the end of the seven year tribulation and the battle of Armageddon when Christ will return at the head of heaven's armies and bring these times of the Gentiles to a screeching halt and set up his everlasting kingdom. And so we have Daniel's first vision of four wild beasts that rise up out of the stormy sea of nations and one like the Son of Man that comes in the clouds of heaven to bring the fifth and everlasting kingdom which will never pass away and can never be destroyed. In connection with that, we were spending quite a bit of time in Daniel 7.25. It said that the Antichrist, in the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period, will think to change times and laws. And we pointed out that with all this woke culture and all of this globalism, that we believe we're already seeing a lot of efforts to do what he will do on a more drastic scale. And so we talked some about the signs of the times. I believe that in the light of current events, there are only three kinds of people in our world today. There are, number one, those that are scared. There are, number two, those who are too stupid to be scared. And there are, number three, those who know their Bible. Those who know what this world is coming to. And more importantly, those who know who's coming back to this world. Jesus talked about this in his Olivet Discourse in Luke 21, 25 through 28, when he said, and there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars, and upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, for looking after those things which are coming upon the earth, for the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. 
And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. It was the beginning of a new school year at Tabernacle Baptist Academy. It was a Friday afternoon. I can't remember where I was, but I know the hallway was very crowded. And uh, they were going to open classes on Monday. And I saw a dear student at the time. Her family moved up to New Jersey afterwards. But I saw a dear student there named Dawn Vicari. And I said to Dawn, I said, Dawn, I've got a Bible quiz question for you. Why is it that when I look at you right now, I think of Luke 21, 28? And I said, if you don't know the answer right now, I'll give you the weekend to think about it. And then hopefully if I see you next week and you know the answer, you can tell me. And if you don't know the answer and you'd like, I can tell you. And so I saw her a few days later and I said, did you figure out why when I saw you on Friday and looked at you, you reminded me of Luke 21, 28? And she said, no, I can't figure it out. And I said, well, Dawn, like a number of people do, when you were back in elementary school, did you ever hear the saying that the uh, teacher had her eyes in the back of her head? So if she was writing on the board, you could, she could still see what was happening in the classroom. Well, it was sort of like that. Some people have their glasses up like this. Sometimes you'll see it like that. That's the way Dawn was. She had her glasses up like that, like she had eyes in the top of her head, so she was looking up. So I said, when I saw you with eyes, you know, in the top of your head, it made me think of Luke 21, 28, that when these things begin to come to pass, then you're to look up and lift up your head, for your redemption draweth nigh. I believe that the Bible is more up to date than tomorrow morning's newspaper headlines. In fact, one preacher said he believes that the Lord's coming for his church is so close that he said he stopped looking for the signs and he started to listen for the shout. <laughs> I think all of us want to lend our voices and join with the Apostle John in Revelation 22:21, where he prays, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Hope of all our hopes the sum. Take thy waiting children home. Long, so long, this groaning earth, cursed with war and flood and dearth, longs for its redemption birth. Therefore, come, we daily pray, Bring the resurrection day. Wipe creation's curse away. Even so come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Well, we looked at the four wild beast kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Let's look briefly at chapter 7, verse 18. But the saints of the Most High... By the way, it's interesting to study names in the Bible. For example, you'll find out that the two patriarchal names for God are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God Almighty. You'll find that Isaiah's favorite name for God is the Holy One of Israel. 
you'll find that Jesus' favorite name for God is Father. You'll find that in Deuteronomy, Moses' favorite name for God is the Lord thy God. It's interesting to study the names of God. In the books around the captivity and afterwards, like Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah, one of God's favorite names for himself is the Most High God, or the Most High. And uh, we read in verse 18, But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. And then verse 27, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. In talking about the work that the suffering servant of the Lord would do, in the fourth suffering servant song of Isaiah, in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, where we're told that he would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, and that by his knowledge would God's righteous servant justify many. In that great Isaiah 53 chapter, we're told in verse 12, therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. When God exalts Christ and honors him in the fifth kingdom, the everlasting kingdom of the Son of Man, what we call the millennium, he's going to allow God's people to join with him and participate in his rule. And uh, that kingdom is going to be delivered to the saints of the Most High God. And while that will certainly involve Jewish saints, I believe that church-age saints will be involved too. Jesus said to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3.21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. Even as I also overcame and am sat down with my father in his throne. Now, our post-millennial and our amillennial friends often teach that Jesus' throne is the throne of God in heaven where he's seated at the right hand. But I don't believe that's what Revelation 3.21 is teaching. When Jesus overcame and said it is finished, God honored him by exalting him to his own right hand and he sat down at the right hand of the Father's throne in heaven. That's the Father's throne. But he says, when you overcome, my faithful people, you will sit down with me in my throne. Jesus overcame and he is seated on the Father's throne right now in heaven during this church age. But he says that when his faithful people overcome and they participate in his rule, they will sit on his throne. I believe that's the millennial throne of David from which he'll rule the world and will be ruling with him. And I believe he clearly distinguishes his throne from the Father's throne in heaven and says just as he is overcome and is seated on the Father's throne, so someday when we overcome, we will be seated with him in his throne. And I believe that that's the throne of David. He says, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, Matthew 25, 31. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, his throne. And I believe that that throne is the throne of David that was promised to 
the coming Messiah. We heard Dr. Bob Jones III at a congress at Tabernacle back in the early 2000s preaching on Daniel 7. And he said to a group that was assembled there in the gymnasium, he said, don't be too hard on bureaucrats. Someday you're going to be one. We're all going to have positions of high authority in the most important kingdom of all. And Jesus promised the faithful few in the church of Thyatira in Revelation 2, 26 through 28. He said, He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, I will give him power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter are broken into shivers, even as I have received of my father, and I will give him the morning star. That faithful remnant in the church of Thyatira <coughs> that refused to acknowledge the wicked rule of Jezebel, Jesus says, someday you will rule the world. You see, only they who overcome the world will someday have a right to rule over the world. We sing victory in Jesus, and it's our faith in Jesus that gives us the victory. As we read in 1 John 5, 4 and 5, whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? And if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you are an overcomer in the New Testament sense of that word. In fact, Romans 8.37 says we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. So that means that in Jesus' name, you can attack the enemy and you can withstand the enemy like an octopus, well-armed. <laughs> Notice 7.15. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. Notice verse 28. Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. There was a lot to take in in this vision. <laughs> he probably got a better night's sleep in the lion's den than he did that night that he had this dream. There was so much the process. <laughs> but notice, he kept the matter in his heart. We read in Luke 2.19 as part of the Christmas story that Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Here's an interesting Bible study project for Christmas. The Christmas narrative in the New Testament can be summarized in these simple words. Joseph dreamed. Mary pondered. Joseph dreamed. Mary pondered. 
There are four main chapters that deal with the Christmas story in the New Testament. Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2. And Matthew 1 and 2 tells the Christmas story through the eyes of Joseph and God uses dreams to direct him. Now, I'm being a little bit simple because uh, for, for the simplicity's sake, if you look at it more, it's a little more developed. For example, God spoke to the wise men in Matthew 2.12 through a dream, not just Joseph. Uh, all the hill country of Judea wondered and pondered uh, the kind of child John the Baptist would be. So it's not Mary in Luke 1 and 2 who's doing all the pondering. It's not Joseph in Matthew 1 and 2 that's doing all the dreaming. But if I could uh, speak in general terms. God told the Christmas story through Joseph's eyes in Matthew 1 and 2 and used dreams to direct them. God told the Christmas story through Mary's eyes in Luke 1 and 2. And there was a lot of emphasis on people meditating about these wondrous things that the human heart needed to process. Now, Mary pondered all these things in her heart, and I say to you, she had a lot to ponder. The world ever since has been pondering what Mary pondered every Christmas season and at other times of the year. An old Puritan commentator named John Trapp, Spurgeon loved the Puritans. And he said that of all of his favorite Puritan commentators, John Trapp was his favorite. Well, worth reading if you get a chance. Wrote back in the 1500s during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. But uh, John Trapp said Mary's heart was like the Ark of the Covenant that treasured these spiritual blessings. Just like the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle contained the Ten Commandments, and the golden pot of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, contained within its very innermost being these holy objects. So Mary pondered these holy things of Christmas and the fulfillment of prophecy. And uh, her heart was like an Ark of the Covenant, treasuring the spiritual blessings of God. And I believe that that was true of the coming Messiah. He says in Psalm 40, prophetically, Lo, I come in the volume of the book that is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy laws within my heart. His heart, too, was an Ark of the Covenant filled with the things of Holy Scripture. But we don't want to stop there. God wants your heart and my heart to be an Ark of the Covenant he puts it like this in Colossians 3, 16 and 17. He says that, uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts unto the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father through him. The psalmist puts it like this in Psalm 119, 11. He says, Thy word have I hid or treasured in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. You could teach a Sunday school lesson on Psalm 119, 11, and you could call it best things. 
thy word, that's the best book. Have I hidden in mine heart, that's the best place. That I might not sin against thee, that's for the best of purposes. In this dramatic vision here in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has seen a vast sweep of history, beginning with the Babylonian captivity and closing with the 1,000-year reign of Christ on this earth and beyond. What comfort it must have given to him and to his people in exile that the prophecies would one day be fulfilled and their Messiah would reign on the throne of David. And this harks back to Isaiah's great prophecy in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 that we love to rehearse, especially during the Christmas season. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. You see, Christ was not only born to Mary, but unto us. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. There's the doctrine of the incarnation right in the Old Testament. Unto us a child is born whose name shall be called the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And when the angel Gabriel came to Mary to announce the virgin birth of the Messiah, he wonderfully reminded her of that promise in Isaiah. In Luke 1, 30 through 33, when he said, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God, and thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now we come to chapter 8, Daniel's second vision, the ram, the male goat, and the little horn, the ram, the male goat, and the little horn. One commentator entitled the chapter, The Horns of the Heathen. <laughs> Belshazzar reigned from 553 to 539 BC. And so since this vision was given to Daniel in the third year of his reign, we would date this at 551 BC. Two years after the vision, he was just given in chapter 7. Daniel in his vision is transported to the city of Susa in Persia. And there he sees by the river a ram with two horns that rampages so much of the map. 
and takes all kinds of territory moving westward and northward and southward. And nobody can stop him. This ram has two horns and the second one comes up after the first and is taller than it. And then he sees from the west a he-goat charging at the ram. And he attacks the ram with great speed and anger. He moves so fast that his feet don't even touch the ground. And he demolishes the lamb and makes short work of him, devastates him. And he has great anger as he charges. And when this goat that has a conspicuous horn on his head between his eyes, that represents the first king of the Grecian Empire. When he's at the height of his power, that conspicuous horn is broken and four notable but less conspicuous horns come up on the head of the goat to take his place. And then Daniel sees out of one of those four horns, a little horn emerge which will greatly persecute God's people and cause the daily burnt offering on the brazen altar of sacrifice in the Jewish temple to cease and he destroys the temple. And one angel asks another in Daniel's hearing, how long will this uh, destruction of the temple take place? And he says for 2,300 days. And then in the second half of the chapter, Gabriel interprets this vision to Daniel and reveals a lot about the coming Antichrist, of whom that little horn that comes out of one of the four horns is a type or a picture prophecy or a foreshadowing. That's a quick summary of this chapter. I have some questions for you. First question, identify the ram. What does the rampaging ram represent? Medo-Persia Empire, thank you. The ram was the royal symbol of Persia. Marcellinus, a 4th century historian, states that the Persian ruler bore the head of a ram as he stood in front of his army. Dr. Coles, in his excellent prophetic outline, comments that the ram was the national symbol of Persia. A banner bearing the emblem of the ram preceded the armies of the empire into battle. An image of a ram was also stamped on Persian coins. Here's a, another question. How was the Medo-Persian empire previously depicted in the book of Daniel? Here it's pictured as a ram with two horns and the second one comes up last and is taller. But how was the Medo-Persian Empire pictured earlier in the book? Do you remember? Okay, yes. In chapter 7, he was pictured as a bear who reared himself up more on one side than the other and had a meaty, uh, three meaty ribs in his mouth between his teeth. How was the, how was the Medo-Persian Empire represented earlier than that? Oh, very fierce, yeah. But earlier in the book, how was that empire represented? Remember, this, after the gold head of Babylon, silver. 
the silver arms and breast, remember? Okay, in Nebuchadnezzar's image. Okay, this is that same Medo-Persian empire. Next question. Identify the male goat, who's also called the shaggy goat or the rough goat. Uh, who is this he goat? What's the he goat represent? Greece, Greece, okay, good. Uh, the goat was the acknowledged symbol of Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is where Alexander the Great came from. That's the northern part of Greece, but it, uh, it represents the Grecian Empire. Alexander's father, Philip of Macedon, uh, consolidated Macedonia and I think all of Greece under his rule, if I remember correctly. But then when he died, his son Alexander took Grecian rule uh, to uh, great lengths. Um, in the next 13 years, he Hellenized the world. You've probably heard that expression, Hellenization. It comes from the Greek word uh, hellos, it means Greece. He Grecianized the world. He gave the world Greek culture, gave the world Greek language. Uh, that's why the New Testament was written in the Greek at that time in the Greco-Roman Empire. A very uh, impressive figure in history. But the goat was the acknowledged symbol of Macedonia. The conspicuous horn between the goat's eyes was its first and greatest king, Alexander the Great. Figures of a goat with a single horn are found on Macedonian monuments. Historical drawings have been discovered which depict a one-horned goat as the symbol for the ancient Greek armies. Now again, remind yourself, Alexander doesn't come into power until 336 BC. Daniel's predicting this in 551 BC. And uh, we look back historically and we see that the goat was the perfect symbol for Greece. How was the Grecian Empire previously depicted by Daniel? Here it's a he-goat with a conspicuous horn between its eyes, but how was the empire of Greece previously depicted in Daniel? Okay, the leopard that had the four wings of a bird on its back and the four heads in chapter 7. And earlier, how was it depicted? Yeah, the, the bronze... Uh, the uh, thighs of bronze and the belly of bronze, yeah. So this is just another way of symbolizing this third of the four world kingdoms. Is the little horn in chapter 8 the same little horn depicted in chapter 7? I see one distinguished leader of the church, shaking his head no. And uh, I believe that that is the correct answer. <laughs> yeah, don't confuse these two little horns, though they do have some association. In Daniel 7, the little horn comes up on the head of the fourth beast, Rome. And from a small beginning, it rises to great power. Three of the ten horns that are already on the head oppose the little horn as it's rising to power, and he demolishes them. 
and then the other seven willingly give their allegiance to him, and he rises out of nowhere and quickly takes over a ten-nation revived Roman Empire, a ten-nation United States of Europe, and he rules the West. In that position, he'll make a seven-year political peace pact with Israel, Daniel 9.27, which he'll break in the midst of the week. And this division becomes the basis for the two equal halves of Daniel's 70th week, the tribulation period, the first three and a half years, and the second three and a half years. The second three and a half years Jesus calls the Great Tribulation in Matthew 24, 21. The little horn in chapter 8 doesn't come out of the fourth empire, but out of the third, out of the Grecian empire. When Alexander dies at the height of his power, four horns take his place, representing great leaders and divisions of his kingdom. One of those kings is called the king of the north, and he rules north of Israel in Syria. The eighth king in that succession of these kings of the north is a historical figure who reigned from 175 to 161 BC, known as Antiochus IV. But he gave himself the name Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus God Manifest. But his enemies behind the scenes changed his name in a play on words to Antiochus Epimenes, Antiochus the Madman. <laughs> he became a great enemy of the Jewish people and greatly persecuted them. He came from the Third Empire and he came from the Syrian division of that empire when it was divided into four parts. And he became a great persecutor of God's people. But he is a type or a picture prophecy of the little horn in Daniel 7, the Antichrist, because a lot of what he did to Israel in persecuting them, and he did terrible things. The Antichrist will do on an even bigger scale when he comes in the future in the tribulation period. What was the response of Alexander the Great when Daniel chapter 8 was read to him? What was the response of Alexander the Great? It happened in the year 332 BC in his Palestinian campaign. What was the response of Alexander the Great when Daniel 8 was read to him by the Jewish high priest, Yadua. Yes, that's true. If you get a chance, especially with Palm Sunday coming up, study Zechariah 9, 1 through 8. It's an impressive prophecy. Remember, Zechariah... Chapter 9 was written around 485 B.C., keep that in mind. And it's a prophecy of Alexander the Great's Palestinian campaign in the year 332 B.C. And it talks about how he knocks out Syria, comes down the Mediterranean coast, takes Tyre, knocks out Philistine cities, 
And then he comes back north, heading towards Jerusalem, through the Holy Land. But for some reason, Zechariah says, he passes by the city and spares it, though he wreaked destruction everywhere before. And then another king is introduced who doesn't come on a war horse but on a donkey. And instead of bringing terror, he brings rejoicing. And Israel's king comes to him riding on a donkey. A wonderful picture of Palm Sunday in contrast to Alexander the Great's great war machine several centuries earlier. It's a great study. But when he comes back the second time, he will not come back on a donkey. He will authoritatively speak peace to the nations, Zechariah 9.10. And his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river even unto the ends of the earth. That's talking about Messiah's millennial reign. So that's a neat study all to itself, Zechariah 9, 1 through 8. But Josephus, the Jewish historian in in his antiquities, fills in some of the background material for us. He says when Alexander and his army was coming to Jerusalem to destroy it, the Jewish high priest Yadua, J-A-D-D-U-A, in full ceremonial high priestly dress, led a procession to meet Alexander. He led a procession out of the city. And he read to Daniel, he read to Alexander, Daniel chapter 8, that predicted clearly that Alexander would attack the Persian Empire and defeat it. And he was foretold in this great prophecy. And according to Josephus, Alexander was so impressed that he fell down before the feet of the high priest and he entered Jerusalem peaceably and even worshiped at the temple. And he became a friend to the Jewish people in the ancient world. And when he built Alexandria in Egypt, it eventually became a haven for the Jewish people in troublous times for centuries. It's a neat story. In this chapter, chapter 8, five persons move across the great stage of prophecy and history. Daniel the prophet, Cyrus, king of Persia, Alexander the Great of Greece, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, and the Antichrist. Look for these five great figures of Daniel 8. Daniel the prophet, verses 1 and 2, verses 15 through 19. This is not in your notes. I've added quite a bit since I've done these notes, so hopefully the notes will be a good starting point, but feel free to fill in. Daniel the prophet, 8, 1 and 2, verses 15 through 19, verses 26 and 27. Cyrus, king of Persia, verses 3 and 4, and verse 20. Alexander the Great of Greece, verses 5 through 8, and verses 21 and 22. Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, verses 9 through 14. And the Antichrist, verses 23 through 27, who by peace will destroy many. Question, how is Antiochus a type or a picture prophecy of the future Antichrist. What are some of the prophetic parallels?
He was a terrible enemy of the Jewish people. Yeah, well, he gained, he gained his position in the empire through all kinds of flattery. And um, he uh, sent a commander to Jerusalem who made like he was real friendly to the Jewish people. And then when they won his confidence, the army won his, their confidence, uh, they slaughtered them on the Sabbath day when they were peaceably worshiping in the temple. Uh, he was a great deceiver. Uh, he uh, loved things Greek. And he kind of saw himself as a god. And uh, he um, back gave himself the nickname uh, Epiphanes, which means God manifest. He saw himself as a kind of an incarnation of the Greek god Zeus. And he wanted the Jews to forsake their Hebrew culture and become thoroughly Greek. And when people refused, he killed them. And uh, he uh, set up on the, he desecrated the Jewish temple. He uh, set up uh, an image of the Olympian Zeus on the altar of brazen sacrifice. He slaughtered a female pig and scattered the broth around the altar. He completely stopped the daily sacrifice of the burnt offering, and he basically desecrated the temple. It remained inoperative for about three years, and then God raised up the heroic uh, Maccabees and, uh, and uh, true followers of, uh, of uh, the faithful, and uh, with overwhelming odds that the book Hebrews speaks about, uh, turning the flight the armies of aliens out of weakness being made strong, the Jewish War of Independence in the intertestamental period, they were able to retake the temple area and Jerusalem and cleanse the temple and restore it. About three years after Antichrist desecrated it, that became the basis for the Jewish Feast of Hanukkah, which we'll maybe talk a little more about next week. Um, but he... He claimed to be God. He hated the Jewish people. He bitterly persecuted and turned on them. Uh, a woman would be, I believe, executed if she uh, circumcised, if she had her son circumcised. Uh, if anybody was found a copy of the Law of Moses, he'd be executed. Um, uh, uh, it, it, was a, it was a terrible time. Well, the Antichrist, at the midst of the tribulation period, is going to break his covenant with the Jewish people. He's going to cause the daily sacrifice to cease. He's going to set up an image of himself in the temple and demand that all men worship it and take the mark of the beast or else. Uh, but he will come to a decisive end by the hand of God, just like we'll find out Antiochus Epiphanes did, uh, dying in insanity in Persia. Um, and so some neat parallels to study there. Um, the prefix anti in the name Antichrist has two main meanings in the Greek language. It means against, I'm anti-something, but it also means instead of. And both of the meanings of this Greek prefix fit the Antichrist because he will be against the true Christ while posing as the Christ. To try to capture this in English, David Hubbard put it this way. He says he will pose as Christ while being opposed to Christ, which I think is a good way to put it. Well, we have the description of Daniel's fourth, second vision in 8, 1 through 14. Notice, first of all, 8, 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, 
A vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass when I saw that I was in Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in a vision, and I was by the river of Uli. Shushan, or Susa, word that means lily, was some 230 miles east of Babylon and 120 miles north of the Persian Gulf. It, was a, it would become a major city of the Persian Empire. A century later, the Persian king Xerxes, the Ahasuerus of the Book of Esther, built a magnificent palace in Shushan, which was where the events recorded in the Book of Esther took place. Nehemiah was King Artaxerxes' cupbearer in the Susa Palace following the uh, reign of Xerxes. Since Daniel was about to describe the victory of the Medes and Persians over Babylon, God put him into the future capital of the Persian Empire, and that was the setting for this great prophecy. We read in verses 3 and 4, Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold... There stood before me, before the river, a ram, which had two horns, and two horns, and the two horns were high. But one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. Persia extended its empire to the west, north, and south but did not attack the barbaric tribes to the east. With a vast army of more than two million soldiers. Question, why did the one horn on the ram come up later than the first? And why was it higher than the first? Why did the one horn on the head of the ram come up later than the first horn and why was it higher than the first horn? Remembering that the two horns represent the combined Medo-Persian Empire. Media was more dominant earlier, well prior to the uh, Babylonian captivity. But when Cyrus conquered the Medes, the Persian conquered the Medes in 559, and he combined the empires into the Medo-Persian Empire, the Persian element, which was the second element, dominated in time and became the more powerful. This is expressed by the second horn coming up later on the head, but being higher. It's a perfect description of this Medo-Persian Empire under King Cyrus. Then we read in verses 5 through 7, And as I was considering, behold, and he goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran into him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him, or anger, and smote the ram and brake his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him. And there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Question. Why does our text say that the feet of the goat 
touch not the ground. It's like he moved so fast, he didn't even touch the ground. It's like he flew. Alexander could move a striking force by land quicker than any man ever had. In the words of Dr. Coles, his ability to strike suddenly and conquer with lightning speed has baffled military strategists ever since that time. An ancient writer named Arian, A-R-R-I-A-N, tells that at the river Granicus in the year 334 BC, Alexander plunged into the stream, swam across it, rushed on the Persians in the fury of his power, and overwhelmed them. In three decisive battles between the years 334 and 331 BC, Alexander, with an army of only about 35 to 40,000 men, overcame the great Persian Colossus. He defeated Darius III's army, the Persian army, in the battle at Granicus in 334 BC, the battle of Issus, 332 BC, and Arbella in 331 BC. The battle at Arbella was particularly bloody with 600,000 men being killed. Now, why did the goat attack the the ram with such fury? With great choler. There was a lot of bad blood between the Greeks and the Persians prior to this. In fact, you had the Greco-Persian Wars that lasted from 497 to 449. Greece had a built-in hatred of Persia. And Alexander loved things Greece. In spite of all of his warlike tendencies, he also loved Greek culture and was a student of the famous philosopher Aristotle as a boy. And he loved Greek culture and he hated Persia. And when he got his chance, he attacked it. And then he tried to spread Greek culture all over. (laughs) But also he tried to integrate the two countries after he conquered them. I think there was a marriage ceremony where 300 of his soldiers were married at the same time to uh, Persian and Oriental women. He's quite a character. Then we read in 8.8, therefore the he-goat waxed very great and when he was strong, at the height of his power, the great horn was broken and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. How did Alexander the Great die? Something like that, yeah, great fever, yeah. And there were alcoholic complications too. Alexander died, uh, I think to be technically uh, correct, of malaria and complications from alcoholism. In 323 BC, at the age of 32, in Babylon, he was seized by a fever after a night-long drinking bout. It was said of Alexander, He conquered the world, but he could not conquer himself. Proverbs 16.32 says, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. Spiritually speaking, what that means for us Christians is Romans 6.11. 
Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, when a Christian dies to self, that's in some ways harder than physical death itself for at least two reasons. Number one, you've got to officiate at your own funeral. You've got to put yourself to death in Jesus' name, identifying with the crucified, risen Lord. And secondly, you've got to do it daily. Very quickly, the four horns that came up after Alexander died, and this is important, Daniel 11.4 says that his kingdom would not be left to his posterity. It wasn't. None of his children inherited the throne. It was a fight among his generals. And the dust settled by the year 301 BC, and there were four generals who carved up his empire into four parts, plus there were some other parts too that were in addition. When Alexander on his deathbed was said, who should your kingdom go to? He famously replied, to the strongest. <laughs> now, keep in mind that this prophecy is given in 551 BC, and the division of the empire under four generals didn't take place till 301 BC, two and a half centuries later. Let that sink in. Dr. Cole says, while all this is history to us, it was still future when Daniel had this vision. Prophecy is history written beforehand, not as the liberals say, prophecy after the fact, as if it rewrote history and made it look like prophecy. Oh, no. This was history written beforehand. In fact, when you look at the life of Christ predicted in the Old Testament, you could go as far as to say it's the pre-written life. Can you imagine the excitement in Philip's voice in John 1.45 when he finds his friend Nathaniel and says, we have found him. We have found him. Of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And remember what Peter said in the household of Cornelius in Acts 10.43, to him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Have you ever stopped to consider that Jesus is the only person who ever lived and who ever lives who could plan his own birth? Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.